ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Richard Aidy. This is The Money. If you listen regularly, you'll know that we're often concerned with the here and now. Employment, inflation, interest rates. We'll also pull out the focus a bit to look at issues like the economic impact of El Nino, the slowing Chinese economy and its effect on Australia. And sometimes we take more of a deep dive, like last week's show, on how residential property prices and social class are affecting one another. All of this is in the context of what we can call the post-lockdown economy. The pandemic changed things, and some of them won't change back. And if you look at the bigger picture, over time, that's what big crises do. They send us in different directions. This is what Harold James has been documenting. He's an economic historian, and he looks at the effect of these key moments in seven crashes, the economic crises that shape globalisation. The first of these is the Great Famine, still called the Great Hunger in Ireland. But it's about much more than potatoes. Yes, absolutely. It's it's a failure of the whole European crop. There was a period of really disastrous um, summers, cold weather, no sun, rain, overall of northern Europe, Belgium, the Netherlands, northern Germany. And the crisis just demonstrated a simple problem that Europe couldn't feed itself. And because Britain and France are so tied to the rest of Europe, this crisis quickly spreads. One of the things about the spreading of the crisis is that It causes a policy dilemma. So at first, the governments think, the British government in Ireland uh, wanted to give uh, famine assistance, uh, set up soup kitchens, uh, imported grain. But the importing of the grain from North America or from the Middle East drained the British gold reserves. And then they put up the interest rates in order to defend the gold reserves. And putting up the interest rates caused a business crisis as well. So the businesses were failing at the same time as the food providers failing. But what it doesn't do is stop what we have the beginnings of, which is a kind of globalisation, not on the scale we see it today, but that's, that's what's happening. It doesn't stop that. Exactly. The central vision, I think, is at first... People think maybe we can deal with the crisis by ourselves. But then very, very quickly, this shows that Europe simply can't be self-sufficient. Europe needs to trade more. And so part of that trade opening is to reduce tariffs and agree free trade agreements. And in the 1850s, there's a colossal push to open up trade, but actually to do more than that, because the vision that comes out of a crisis like that is that governments need to be effective, they need to be efficient. Just saying things doesn't work, but you need, for instance, if you want to trade more, you need to have railway networks, you need to have have ports. There's a whole social revolution mm. that goes along with the opening of the, of the economy in the 1850s. So a quarter of a century later... It's a much more connected world. There's two cables linking Europe and America. The steamship and the railways are revolutionising transport and travel. Suez canals open. And then, beginning in Vienna, there's a series of stock market crashes. This is really the world's first simultaneous global financial crisis. And it's a reaction not to scarcity in the way that the 
whole dramatic situation in the 1840s was a response to scarcity, but this is a response to surplus and success. It's a positive supply shock that's doing it. But what happens then is that it creates a euphoria. The euphoria leads to overselling, so there are so many railroads being constructed at the same time. Suddenly you realize that not all of them can succeed, and that's the moment of a dramatic reversal. And indeed then partial pushback against the free trade opening that had characterized the 1850s. Is this all a a contagion in which panic leads to more panic? Or is there a genuinely more substantive connection in that there's this sort of speculation, especially in railways? Yes. And people see analogies from one country to another so that the crisis started in Europe in May, but in the fall, it's in the United States. And there was the same kind of railway speculation in the United States on an even bigger scale after the end of the Civil War and with the opening of the West. Yeah, and then you get the failure of a railway constructor, Jay Cook, in September, and it really kicks off. Absolutely. But again, the critical point, I think, is that not all the railways go bankrupt. It's a response to overbuilding. and It's like the dot-com boom. It didn't end the internet. There was just too much and too varied companies being created. And you knew that not all of them could succeed. This all leads to what's what's been called uh, the first Great Depression, but it's quite different in the United States to it is in Austria, Hungary and Germany and different again in Britain and indeed in other places. This is the depression of the 1870s and 1880s. Yes. And it's really not a depression in the modern sense. What it was was a period of falling prices In the 1870s and 1880s, the fall in prices is actually in some ways a benign fall in prices in that it reflects technical progress. And, you know, when we see computers getting cheaper today, for instance, we don't think that that's a bad sign. That's exactly the kind of price deflation that took place in the 1870s. It's it's, it's fundamentally a benign one. But it obviously poses a challenge for the grain producers in Europe who are just less efficient than the grain producers in North America or uh, South America and the Russian Empire. Um, you've got Australia coming into the world economy at this stage as well. So mm-hmm. you know, the Europeans just can't compete with that. And they then demand some kind of protection. And that, that's the beginning of a process of a gradual turning away from the world economy. But it's not, a, it's not really a harmful exercise in that most people experience that period of falling agricultural prices is beneficial because Mm. bread is getting cheaper, beer is getting cheaper. It obviously produces a quite profound distributional struggle. I'm glad you mentioned the response to it because what we see is a very different response to the Great Famine. We see instead this rise of protectionism, tariffs on many agricultural and and industrial imports. Yes, and almost universally those tariffs – didn't do much to protect anybody. And where they were applied to the industrial goods, they were harmful. So one of the classic instances, I think, of that is the turn in Germany to protectionism at the end of the 1870s. And the industries that were protected were the industries of the classic industrial revolution, iron and steel. And after the turn to protectionism, They didn't grow so quickly, but the industries that grew were not protected, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, electrical goods industries. 
We don't have time, I'm afraid, to go through each of the seven crashes, and I do want to touch on the most recent one, but these two that you document first are representative in a way because the first, as you've already made clear, is a supply shock. The second, well, it's partly about financial malfeasance. Yes, yes. It has sort of contemporary overturns, and the last chapter echoes some of those financial crises from the the 19th century. On The Money Today, uh, you're with Richard Aidey, and my guest is Harold James, who's a professor at Princeton. He's also author of Seven Crashes, The Economic Crises That Shape Globalisation. We've just touched on the first two. The interesting thing is that these are two different sorts of crashes. They drive different responses. So the supply shock crises, the Great Famine, uh, the Great Inflation driven by the oil shock in the 1970s, they lead to greater globalisation and more connections, Harold. That's right. You know, fundamentally, the theme of the book is that crises are not always the same. And in particular, the distinction that you just made between demand shocks and supply shocks is really fundamental. So in 2008, we lived through a a financial crisis and that contracted demand. And as in the Great Depression of the 1930s or the Great Depression of the 19th century, the reaction to that is a partial turning inwards and turning away from globalization. Um, And what I wanted to do and why I began with the potato crisis, the potato hunger, and why I ended with COVID and Mm. the supply shocks that have followed from the Ukraine is that it seems to me that this is a completely different kind of crisis in which when we react to shortages, we have to think very differently than when we react to a failure of aggregate demand. With the demand shocks, they push in the other way. So not quite an out-and-out rejection of globalisation, but much more of a focus on national self-sufficiency and, in effect, a contraction of global markets. I want to ask you about the last one, uh, the one that is most recent that we all know about, which is the Great Lockdown. It was different because it was a health shock, killed millions of people, and it was an economic shock. Yes, so it, it changes completely the character of demand. People can't go to restaurants, they can't go to the theatre, but there's a colossal demand for computers to connect to their offices. It produces, most spectacularly, I think, a big uh, shortage of semiconductors. And when you highlight the question of supply shortages, then everybody who thinks that they sit at a nodal point in a supply chain realises that they can use that power and use that position to put pressure on everybody else. Most obviously, we think of Russia weaponizing its control of energy supplies, but even um, Algeria says that it won't supply gas to Spain if Spain supports Morocco, because Morocco and Algeria are locked in a conflict in the Western Sahara. So there's actually a connection, it seems to me, between the the COVID crisis and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that it leads countries that think that they sit on the choke point to try to politicise that and use that. I think that's worth talking about a bit more, Harold. Essentially, are you arguing that without the COVID pandemic and the great lockdown, that maybe Russia doesn't do what it did in in February last year and and invade Ukraine? Yes, I think that's right. The chain of causation goes through the awareness that Russia thinks that its control of energy is really, really critical 
to putting its political viewpoint over. And, you know, in the end, we saw that Europeans could develop alternatives to the Russian gas through the pipelines. But the initial thought is, here, we're going to use energy in order to get everybody on our side. One of the things you also underline, and you've already touched on this, that all seven of these crises were different. Some were only made possible by the reaction to the previous one. But policymakers should be wary of the idea that, hey, we've we've seen this before, we know what to do, this is what we'll do. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I think that that's exactly the big mistake in 2020, to think that what was happening was a kind of demand shock and you needed to augment, uh, supplement the overall level of demand in society. So you needed big fiscal programs, big monetary expansion. And that took place in circumstances in which that was exactly what was not needed. Just aggregate spending doesn't do it, whereas aggregate spending was exactly the right thing to do in 2008. Yes. Um, and so what what we've done really with the response to the COVID crisis is to get into a situation in which uh, inflation is likely to remain around for at least a considerable period of time. The cliche, Harold, is that generals are always fighting the last war. And I'm wondering if economic policymakers are always fighting the last crash and, and crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this lives completely up to that cliche. That they were looking at the wrong thing and thinking of the wrong lessons. You know, they should have looked back to the 1970s, which had very much more in the way of similarities to the problems that we're living through after 2020. Yes, and as we speak, OPEC are turning down supply in order to push up the cost of oil right now. The book closes with, but we learn, it's the last line, but we learn most when the present is most dismal. Now, I can't work out, I couldn't work out whether that's optimistic because the present is dismal, we've been through a lot, or pessimistic, that we actually need to be as bad as it gets before we really start to take things in? Well, I'm inclined really there to fundamental optimism and that that was also part of the lesson of the past supply crises, that these are moments when all kinds of technical innovations are put into effect. So things that were there on the drawing board suddenly become useful. So the mRNA vaccine was around since the 1990s, but you know, suddenly people see an application. And then when it's applied to the COVID virus, then you can see that it's applicable to all kinds of other diseases, to common cancers, for instance. Uh, and it's going to push, I think, for a really quite revolutionary transformation of medicine. Well, I hope you're right. The book, which, as we've already mentioned, walks through seven big crashes is really interesting, Harold. Thank you very much for joining me today. Well, it's been great being with you and talking about it. Thank you so much. Professor Harold James is at Princeton University and the author of Seven Crashes, The Economic Crises That Shaped Globalisation. The key thing that history does is give you a frame of reference beyond the now. Richard Fisher wants you to embrace that. In fact, he wants you to think much more long-term, something we're mostly not good at. Richard's written a book, The Long View, that bells the cat on why that is. Yeah, so so around 100 years ago, in New York, at the New York Stock Exchange, there was a practice that was introduced. Um, It was very simple. It it was an ask for companies that were on the the New York Stock Exchange to report back to the market on how they'd done 
every quarter and what their forecasts were going to be for the next quarter. This was quarterly reporting and it transformed the way that companies think about their plans and the choices they make in terms of whether they invest or whether they do things for kind of like the short-term shareholders. I spoke to a researcher on this, like Arthur Kraft, who's based at City University. He wrote, he's written about the history of it and how it it's shaped business ever since. I mean, not not all countries have quarterly reporting, no. but because the you know the US is so dominant in Western capitalism, it's influenced uh, far beyond its own borders. It has radically shaped the way leaders within companies think about their their prospects and plans. So, if they make kind of decisions that displease the market for the next quarter, they can be punished. This is what Arthur Kraft calls discipline. But then also they themselves, according to Kraft, make decisions that uh, harm their own kind of long-term interests. Uh, Kraft calls this myopia. Leaders will do things like uh, invest less in R&D, make job cuts, less focus on training and people, all the things that would benefit the long-term view of their companies, but they're stuck in the quarterly kind of mindset mm. of the next few months are, are, are the most important time frame, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that the shareholders are pleased. You quote this survey of senior executives, which found that the majority of them, the overwhelming majority of them, would act against the company's long-term interest if it gave them a kind of quarterly boost, partly because their remuneration is often tied to this. That's one of the things that I found when researching the book, that it's not necessarily that the individuals are bad actors working against the, their own company's interests. It's, it's more that the entire systemic kind of incentive structure that is established often just plays to basic human behavior you know if, if you incentivize people to only kind of focus on the next few months and to, and and you pay them handsomely to do that then quite obviously mm -hmm. individuals are going to kind of like follow those, those those interests and so this kind of like focus on targets that are short term rather than long term this is one of the key kind of things that underpins short term thinking and yeah. so we need to think about those but you also found examples of companies that are very old i mean centuries old what is it about these that's led to that longevity? One country I looked at in particular was Japan. It has more very old companies than almost any other country in the world. So there were European companies, for example, Grolsch or Italy's Beretta, that have been around for, for centuries. So it's not the case that there aren't long-term companies elsewhere. It's just Japan has a lot of them. So it begs the question, why is that? There are various different factors, some of which are culturally specific, but generally speaking, one of the things that makes companies last within Japan is, is a focus on serving the community as well as the the kind of the shareholders. So many of, of these these organizations are kind of provide a kind of benevolent service to the people that they serve, but also kind of like to the people who work within the organizations themselves. So the organizations are communities. There's also kind of like the factor of Many of these these old long-lasting companies serve basic human needs as well. So, you know, there's one one particular company which you may have heard of that started like a very long time ago, focusing on playing cards as, yes. and games. Uh, yeah, it's now called Nintendo. You know, it, it produces Zelda, which I've been playing with my, with my daughter over the past weekend. You know, the focus is, has been on play. That's that's always going to be a human need, even if we fast forward two hundred years into the future. Like our future generations will still be playing, and so thinking about like what are the things that last in that sense, I think is another reason why long-term companies have existed for so for so long in in Japan. Yeah, well, you highlight there's a thousand companies more than three hundred years old, and they were surveyed. Many provide services that never go out of style, play, but also I think two hundred and thirty in alcohol, 
155 in food, 117 in hotels, all of which we've all, we've always needed and we're always going to need. Yep, food and alcohol. Yeah, it's, it's a, good, a good bet for, to, to invest in, I suppose. You also talk about deep time organisations, Richard. What are these and what do they have in common? This was a, a study that was published a few years ago that just looked at some of the factors that, again, make organisations last longer. You know, th- these are organisations like the Marylebone Cricket Club, uh, Sverica Reichsbank in Sweden, which is a you know, financial institution, University of al which is in Morocco, which is an Islamic university. Many of these organizations have lasted because they're attached to kind of long-term power, like to the crown in the UK, for example, mm. or a religion like Islam. They they also, like, like the Japanese companies, provide a service, they provide a community. The term that the researchers used was that they're benevolent monopolists. They're the only ones that do the thing, yeah. But they benefit the community around them. So the University of Al Karim trains people. It's, it's you know it's one of the oldest universities in the world, but you know it also encourages a focus on donating money to the community uh, to, to kind of like ensuring that the, the the environment around it prospers as well as it itself, which is something that the often corporations don't do. Another way of looking at it is, is that like it, it more than just benefits the community. It means that the corporation will last longer if it invests beyond its own shareholder needs. Then we get to political systems, which are overwhelmingly biased towards short-termism. What can we do about that? It's a deep challenge for politics. I mean, there's a great quote, um, Jean-Claude Juncker, who was kind of a former leader in the, the European Union, after the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, and he said, we all know what to do, but we don't know how to get re-elected once we've done it. That's the central dilemma for the politician, like how to kind of do things for the long term, but also carry on in their own personal careers. If we move beyond a political sphere, something else you highlight is that we can embrace a long-term view and indeed maintain long-term actions in things like our traditions and in practicing faiths. I was looking for examples of things that have lasted for a very long time and that that could last into the future. Zoroastrianism does, you know, it's a faith based in Iran and in India. The religion has the, these kind of everlasting flames, which have been kept burning for well over 1,000 years in some cases. Keeping it going speaks to kind of like the, the challenges that you have when you have to do things over a very long time. How do you make things last, you know, when they're ephemeral, like a fire? And one of the aspects that you can see within, within the religion is, is that the, there are elements of ritual and community. So when you have a ritual and when people come together to kind of focus on an act, that often can be longer lasting than, say, for example, building something like a statue and then hoping it'll last and it will be kept safe. There are incentive structures that make it beneficial to kind of be part of that, the religious view, but there's also status. And so this an architecture around the flame that keeps it going. And I thought that was really interesting yeah. because Things like rituals, you associate them with religions, but there are many other rituals that, you know, going to a football game, doing rituals with your family, like eating breakfast in a certain way. There's, there's all sorts of kind of like things that we do as communities. The question I wanted to ask in the book is like, what, what rituals foster long-term behaviours? You also talk about some of the approaches to time that have come from different indigenous peoples, especially Native Americans in North America. Yeah, so this this is this is one of the the better known principles in in my field of long term thinking, the seventh generation principle. There are different interpretations, but you know one of them is is that leaders 
should focus on decisions that benefit seven generations hence. So you know, seven generations, 150 years into the future. Others interpret it as being more symmetrical, as in there are seven generations, three beforehand, you know, mm. your great, great grandparent and three after. You know, you should do things that are right by your ancestors and also your descendants. The meaning is the same, basically. We should think beyond just the present generation and think about what our ancestors have done for us, but also kind of like what we should leave behind for them. It's not just Native American culture, like you see it elsewhere. I think this kind of like duty to posterity is something that is essential to human nature and how we relate to one another, but sometimes it's forgotten. Well, when it's remembered, it's often remembered because it's a story and we're a storytelling animal and there's a power in them. And you actually make a point of telling one that has a power, but almost certainly is not true. So the story goes that there's a college in Oxford called New College and it dates back to the 13th century and it had beams uh, in the, the main hall that were rotting supposedly about 200 years ago. And so they needed to be replaced. And so the, the kind of leaders of the college go to the forester and say, like, have we got any oaks? And the forester supposedly said, oh, yeah, the oaks are ready now. The oaks that had been planted in the 13th century were now ready to be chopped down to replace the beams. And supposedly the leaders had a, the foresight to do that. Um, it's not quite true. As in, I, spoke, I spoke to the archivist at the college, Jennifer Thorpe, and she's a bit exasperated by it because it's, you know, it keeps getting repeated as a story because of its power, you know, what it shows mm. for long-term thinking. That said, there are examples elsewhere where trees have been planted with the idea that they will be chopped down later on. You know, it's, it's not it's not that there aren't stories out there in the world, you know, so mm. there are shrines in Japan, for example. Right now, trees are being planted that, that won't be chopped down for 50, 60 years. So it's a powerful story. Apart from stories, there's also art, and, and especially art that people can take part in. And I think this links back to this participating in a public thing in having a ritual and there's this extraordinary thing i didn't know anything about called the letters of utrecht which is a, a city in the netherlands yeah so th this is one of many kind of long-term art projects that exist around the world it's very simple and it's rooted in community but it, it kind of will last for a very long time i hope basically ev every saturday there's a stonemason who kind of goes into the streets of utrecht and carves a letter in a block of stone and then places it into the street and it spells out a poem the poem is well over 100 meters long now it's been going for for many years and it's a kind of a long-term participatory public artwork where people every day can kind of see something slowly being built they can do things like they can write their name or carve their name onto the side of it each block but it's a way of in the everyday life attaching yourself to something mm. that lasts beyond your kind of like short-term perspective but these kind of long-term art projects they help to connect us to a uh, longer term time, but through the lens of culture, art, and th things that kind of like are, are not cold and mathematical, that they're more mm. kind of emotional. And that, that's what I love about them. That's where I want to finish, because that's where you finish the book, about the advantages, the, the upsides of taking a long term view. And one of the things you, you highlight is that it is restorative just to think that way. The start of the book for me began with a personal experience. I began to think about my daughter's trajectory to the next century. She was born in 2013. She stands a pretty good chance of seeing the end of this century, which blew my mind when I thought about it. Mm. Then I started to think about, you know, the year 2100 is often associated with things like sea level rise, robots taking a lot of jobs. It's, it's rarely good news stories. And so that, that in a way was a motivator to me to take that longer view. I started from a point of pessimism, but speaking to people who, who take the long view, long-term organizations, individuals, uh, companies, 
they show that taking the long view is more than just an exercise in sacrifice. It's not just about giving something to future generations and taking away from the current. It can be restorative. You know, if you take a, a long view, it's a lot easier to navigate the tumultuous times that we live in. You know, you can see what truly matters. It gives a source of energy, perspective, and, and ultimately hope. The past is singular, it's fixed, the present is the same, but there are many different futures that lie ahead of us, many different paths and trajectories. And the longer you go into the future, the more you see that those bifurcate into different kind of paths. And, and that for me is, is a source of hope that the future is not yet fixed. And that, that was ultimately the conclusion of the book. I think it's a very hopeful book and I really, really got something out of reading it. Thank you for joining us today, Richard. Thank you. Richard Fisher is the author of The Long View, Why We Need to Transform How the World Sees Time. And that's it for now. The money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. It's produced by Ian Koo. I'm Richard Aidy. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 